Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest today is an old friend that I haven't seen nor spoken to in a fairly long time. Uh, Myris Eftimiopoulos is the president of Strategy International, as well as an academic specializing in strategy and security, crisis management, EU and NATO affairs, and foreign policy and diplomacy, just to name a few. I asked him to come on the podcast to share his wealth of knowledge while discussing the recent developments in Ukraine following the Russian invasion. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Mario, thank you um, so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's um, it's it's nice. First of all, it's nice to see you because it's been it feels like forever. So I'm glad that you were able to do this. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. It's it's really nice to be here. Um, actually, I got to say that I haven't spoken to you for many many years, but you see, <laughs> for, you, you know, know look, for, yeah. For uh, I mean, for the benefit of the people, for you know, for the benefit of the people listening or watching, uh, you know, just a little background. We met in Greece in 2006. I was working there for a very short period um, for a NATO-based organization. Um, I don't know if you were still studying or if you were doing your master's or your doctorate degree. I don't know. You were highly involved. You were in the process of uh, forging your own way, uh, you know, paving that way that uh, for you to, to advance in the future. Uh, you've done very well. I've been following you, obviously. Um, you've excelled into a, uh, into a really, really uh, incredible and knowledgeable person, especially with what we want to speak about today. So, um, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been very long. <laughs> it's been very long. Well, you, you said too, too many good things. I don't know if these apply, but, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. But, um, the, um, you know, the, the truth be told, we actually met through this uh, – uh, NATO-based um, uh, entity that you know is there. It's the it's the non-for-profit uh, part of, of of NATO. That the idea is to to have more dialogue on on NATO and Euro-Atlantic relation. I think this is, has to do very much so with our discussion we're going to have today. At the time, I was setting up my non-for-profit back then. It was Strategy International, but in fact, I was also collaborating with. With a with a center in, in Athens where you were working at that time, as I said, I, I was just finishing my PhD when we met. Uh, I was on roll, I think. <laughs> uh, some years later, I found myself in different countries, continuing doing the things that I like more, which is like political analysis, uh, international politics, and and so on and so forth. A few years later, with a bit more weight on uh, a few more gray hair both in yeah. my head and my yeah we've all been there yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah i mean um it, it's really an honor to to talk about those things and it's really unfortunate that we get to talk about you know um the the events that are taking place i think they you know they 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 have an impact on us on on multiple levels and i think we're go really going to see that in in the market economy soon enough um and although we were hoping, at least in our generation, that things are going to be much, much more connected and more friendly wise, more business oriented and stuff, it seems that egoism has taken over again our, you know, our sentiments and uh, historical um, competitions do not really end. It seems that uh, we we are doomed to to fight with each other um, 
multiple times for reasons that maybe make sense, maybe not, or maybe they're, they might be articulated in a different way, as it seems what Russia does with Ukraine right now. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the middle of this are, you know, people that don't know whether to whether they should move, whether they should go or not. We don't even know how things are going to wake up the next day. What we do know um, is that it seems that, you know, uh, good analysts and good historians uh, repeat that again and again, that history, for some reason, has this tendency to, to repeat itself again and again. Yeah, and I think that's what we are living now. And we're going we're gonna to talk about all those things. Uh, and again, just to go back, I, I've been meaning to, to, to reach out to you and to invite you on the podcast um, during the last maybe two years um, since I started this. I started this in 2019. So it's been quite a few times I've, I've been thinking of bringing you on. Um, you know, these last two, two and a half years, you know, this, is, this has been a period during which we've witnessed so much tension brewing uh, in Europe, you know, whether it's, you know, the refugee crisis following the, the different conflicts in the Middle East, uh, the Southeast Mediterranean issues involving Greece, Turkey, uh, Cyprus, and, you know, there's many other issues that have happened, uh, but the timing could not have been more appropriate now uh, to have you on um, during what seems to be uh, history in the making, uh, you know, after, um, after Russia called for the invasion of Ukraine. Um, a conflict that I think the entire planet is looking at very closely because specifically of what you said of how things uh, in that region, both economically, uh, geographically, and, you know, all these other um, issues could be impacted. Um, so, yeah, I could not be happier to have you uh, on to discuss these recent developments in Europe, um, which, again, it's not only between Ukraine and, and, and Russia. This has a, a, an international scope right it has shaken up the the international political ecosystem um but before and the digital and the digital ecosystem and and, and the digital as well right uh but just to touch a little bit up just to get people to know you a little bit uh you mentioned um you know you you founded uh strategy international it's a think tank um you're an author and you're you're also an academic with uh, a huge specialization in security and crisis management um, EU and NATO affairs, uh, strategy, security, uh, foreign policy and diplomacy. These are just a few of, you know, the list can go on and on. Um, let's, let's start off, Mario. What exactly happened? How have we come to this point? Um, I mean, for everyone that has studied history or that, you know, follows the, the political developments in Europe, after all the atrocities that happened during the last century, um, and that have literally shaped modern history, here we are witnessing what we thought would never occur, right? A, a major power um, uh, invading Europe. Actually, I'm going to tell you something that I actually uh, I, that I witnessed back in 2014. I don't know if I, I ever told you that, but I, I, I had visited Mariupol, Donetsk, and Luhansk just a few months before the 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 the, the war erupted with, mm -hmm. with the separatists. Um, and f funnily enough, until that moment, because my PhD was about NATO Russia, um, and Within within the I had three scenarios, three development as I called it, scenarios, because I was I was trying to figure out what the strategic concept of NATO would be by 2020 or by 2030, and what would happen in terms of NATO. Uh, and the following case scenarios came. Scenario one being that NATO 
would actually fade away due to the fact that it would not be useful any, any longer with regards to security strategy. And because, you know, counterterrorism activities were happening all, all over the world, the collaboration between NATO, Russia, the U.S. and stuff in counterterrorism was absolutely going great, um, namely in Central Asia against the Taliban and so on and so forth. Um, uh, so NATO would probably fade away eventually. Or NATO, as a second scenario, would become, again, an interlocutor of peace in the European or Eurasian continent, considering two things, that eventually Russia would find a reason for a battling situation, whether this would be in the Balkans, or whether this would be in the region around Ukraine or in Ukraine itself. And that was quite interesting. And the third part was that Eventually, NATO would have to go probably global, considering the, the 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 challenges that China would actually showcase through Russia. Now, here's the funny story. My PhD was completed in 2008, and uh, that book came out in 2010, and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, uh, I was kind of right about scenario two, probably going to scenario three, because somehow uh, Russia has sustained its continuous uh, unlawful invasion and war with some finances. So it seems that China has a very big thing to to, to, to do behind it. Um, nevertheless, um, I also followed up the fact that, you know, because of the PhD, things became much, much more interesting. And although my PhD was primary based in 14 countries, so I had to travel in 14 countries. And at that time, I was also working in, in different government positions and I had different um, uh, affiliations, if you want, with regards to, to NATO. I was in NATO Defense College, and I graduated from this, this program that we were traveling around, so I was spending half of the day doing my work, and the other half I was doing my research. One of the things that I figured out is that I had to travel to Ukraine. So when I traveled to Ukraine, I saw two major things. Number one being that Ukraine is huge as a country. It's huge. If we believe, like, okay, Russia is one-eighth of the world's land, okay? So it's the biggest country in the world at this point. However, Ukraine is also big. It's about six times Belgium, right? Uh, one of the things that I found out is that the region is very much important. And I, I it also goes back to history when you read about the Second World War, uh, where in fact the Battle of Ukraine was really important for the troops and the feeding of the troops, uh, whether this would be for the Western powers or the Eastern powers, uh, sorry, for Nazi Germany or the, the Soviet Union in this case. Um, funnily enough, in 2013, China went in an oblast, meaning a, a state, if you want, next to Donetsk called Dnenopetrov. I'm sorry if I'm if I'm if I'm wrong, but this is the the accent that I think mm -hmm. is most appropriate. That they rented about three million hectares of land in oh. order to bring um, agricultural and other. Um, uh, elements that China needs. So from that point on, it was very much evident and clear that the eastern part of Ukraine, that the one that I lived, whether this was in Mariupol or the city of Donetsk or Luhansk where I went and so on and so forth, uh, which was really poor, uh, was somehow put in jeopardy because on the one the Chinese had the front row seats where they were utilized 
the, the first eastern parts, if you want, of Ukraine, and the far eastern parts, which are very historical to the Greek Americans, uh, to the Greeks, I'm sorry, to the Greeks as well, uh, and, and, and to the, you know, the, the indigenous Greeks actually are there, which are Ukrainians, but nevertheless Greeks. Um, uh, it, it actually showed that things w- were not actually going right. Mm-hmm. There was not, there was no development. There was no actual progress. You could see real estate, but it was not reflective towards the the salaries and um, you know towards the the opportunities. The, there there was and is a big issue with cancer uh, due to the to you know to the nuclear blast that happened in 1985. Um, and there's actually a hospital, big hospital for for cancer there as well as um, and and I, I I visited those areas and I want to see by myself what exactly is going. And there I figure it out also that there are a lot of different like people believing in the following, whether they are pro-Russian or they're pro-Ukrainian, they're Russophones or Russo friends, Russophile friends, or they believe that the two should unite, not in terms of the ECSSR, but rather the history that dates back centuries that talks about the Kievan Rus. The Kievan Rus uh, for the Russians are the, the basically Russians are the continuation of the Kievan Rus, but for the Kiev, Kievan Rus, for Kiev, uh, are the true, we, we, we might call it now Russian, but the, the true element of these Slavic tribes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're Ukrainian, obviously, uh, but um, they, the, this, 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 this mentality behind it lasted for many, many, many years. And the competition was also there. Now, we're not talking about Charis Russia, but we're talking about USSR. It was no coincidence that, that Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, actually utilized the history of the USSR, that he spoke for about an hour and a half, like Brezhnev did, trying to convince people of historical values towards the interest of Russia to Ukraine, rather than only Donetsk and Luhansk, mm-hmm. and the, the power efficiency that that Russia has on Ukraine due to cultural, religious, and other ties. In fact, um, in a post-Soviet world, a lot of countries still speak Russian. Ukraine is one of them. Uh, and they speak Russian because it was a trade language. It was a cultural language. It is a very important language with regards to history, to culture, to to the you know to to the the what it offered, if you want, to the to the Eurasian region. But what was never answered, at least in European understanding, values and terms, is whether Russia was actually European power or not. And because it is not a power which is European. Because it always played the the role of you know USSR, uh, big global power, competitive power to the United States, and so on and so forth. Um, it seems that Russia is is and will always be in a disadvantaged position where the the unification of countries around the European Union or NATO would seem like a threat not only to the viability of their security, national security, if you want, if you want to call it like that, but also in the viability of their culture. They're afraid culturally, not only geopolitically. And although Russia reads the world in a geopolitical terminology, which I also think that the West does not read Russia well, 
we have the tendency to believe now in the 21st century, 22 years inside the 21st century, that Russia is still the enemy. And because of that, and because you have a politician who was not born a civilian, but was born and raised under communist regime and was thought to believe that everything is a spy game, he believes that this is a time for Russia to fight back. It's in, it's interesting that you're taking it here because I, I I wanted to ask you if it's possible to see this conflict on both sides, right? I mean, most of the media, if not the majority of them, um, have sort of adopted a pro-Ukraine aspect. Uh, Russia is the is the enemy. How could they do it? Uh, how could they you know uncalled for? Um, uh, you know, regarding the, the the invasion, but let's see if it's possible to 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 look at this from both perspectives. Obviously, the Ukrainian side, I think, pretty much everybody understands it. You know, former Soviet Republic, um, you know, a country that has been attempting for years to create its own path and to dissociate from you know the links that it once had with Russia, uh, a fearful country, especially in recent years of becoming a satellite. Uh, Russian state like Belarus, for example, um, and faced with all these fears, it's a country also that has been struggling to find its place either in the EU or in NATO or even both. I think that's pretty much the global understanding from that position. On the other side, however, if we can, and, and I want to bounce off what you just said to try and understand the position uh, from Russia, and I've been following a lot um, and listening to a lot of commentary and analyses, and strangely enough, a lot of these seem to be coming out of the U.S., uh, which is something that nobody would have expected, um, that it seems that Russia here is the victim. Um, it's a victim of a constant aggression from the West, a victim of NATO's constant efforts to expand and to militarize the easternmost countries in, in Europe, and faced with this aggression, they decided that this was the last straw. This was the line that was crossed, like uh, Putin said in his um, in his uh, uh, in his statement last week, and that pretty much forced them to react. Do you see any validity in these positions or in these arguments? Um, by by trying to connect what I was saying before with your first question and second question, <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, let me say the following. In 2009 and then 2011, Russia asked Ukraine to renew and increase its presence of the Russian fleet in Crimea. That was the first two times where they were rejected because Ukraine basically pulled, pulled out both your Euro-Atlantic flags. Number two, uh, 2007, earlier, with Georgia. Georgia was having and still has the NATO-Georgia committee, whereas NATO has the NATO-Russia council and the NATO-Ukraine council. In the committee, there was an attempt to make it a council, to make it a pathway to entrance. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, Russia attacked Georgia, if you remember, they literally almost, you know, um, uh, made it to Tbilisi, 
And at that moment, they said, well, we're going to show you how it's done. And if you remember some atrocities that were taking place uh, and the Russian soldiers saying, oh, you know, this is how NATO uh, military camps are and this is how they are and this and that. And they just withdrew later on throughout the, you know, the next months to come. Uh, nevertheless, uh, so you have three things. So in 2014, you have the eruption of Mikhansk and Donetsk. And from 2014, in 2016, you have the remilitarization with new technology weaponry of Russia, which, by the way, we have not seen just yet in the in the, uh, in the, in the Ukrainian invasion, yeah. uh, unlawful invasion. Uh, but then what happened, it would, he made a very interesting scenario. So he played with the international uh, law book. He announced that, that these countries would become self-independent. So he asked the so-called presidents to uh, go and self-declare uh, independence. He recognized independence, and then he said, "Okay, now I'll send I'll, I'll send peacekeeping forces." And then in his speech, he utilized the UN Charter for invading the area for peaceful purposes. Now, the the dodgy element is he's very much similar to the legalities that Turkey did on in, in Cyprus. Yeah. And although time wise it is not the same, it, because it happened uh, you know within one night, two nights. Uh, what is interesting is that international law is really, you know, so much extended that anybody can use it for whatever means, as long as he knows how to contemplate and play the the, the rule uh, of the book. Now, the Ukrainians have an unfinished business with Russia, and that is the ties. What sort of ties would Ukraine have with Russia in a post-Soviet state? Belarus never actually left, if you want that that you know, the, the Russian element. It is of no coincidence that the president of Ukraine, of, of Belarus, uh, in a recent, if you want, interview before the war erupted, he was saying that he wanted to be nominated as a military rank from President Putin. And he wanted to have the same rank because he wants to prove his valor to President Putin. And I was kind of like, you know, what the hell is happening here? So what we will see is possibly the reintroduction of a political organization later on with whatever remains under their jurisdiction, unlawful jurisdiction eventually, because he's going to try to, to make, if you want, a, an extra zone outside NATO, so it does not allow NATO to come too close. Now, here's here's the legal uh, part, that every country has the sovereign right to decide its fate, mm-hmm. okay? And they had just decided they wanted a Euro-Atlantic path. Now, NATO protects its sovereign land of the member states, and today of 30 member states, which excludes Ukraine because it is not a member of NATO, which means that NATO does not attack, but rather does not allow others to attack a NATO area. So it really does not make sense why Putin would be afraid if Ukraine would have joined NATO. What he's actually afraid is the military might and capacity of NATO to see and probably extend its abilities to see what's really happening inside Russia. Now, when, you know, following my trip, what I was saying earlier, following my trip to Ukraine, I took a trip into Russia. And I was also giving a lecture at their uh, Mikimo University. It's called MGIMO, uh, which is basically their Harvard. Um, and I was giving a lecture to the students. I was invited by some colleagues there. And it was interesting to me that they were 
they were taught not only international relations from the perspectives that we are, but they were doing a lot of geography, a lot of geopolitics, a lot of understanding of the complex of the area and the land and the the the, the, the physique of the land, the, the historical parts. Why is it important for the for the Russian greatness? What did they lose? How did they lose it? And therefore, the contemplation and understanding of international law would go through those things. Yeah. And they would become experts in history, experts in literature, and utilize whatever it would be to utilize in a, in a post-communist world where they have to become stronger, wiser, but take it slow. So what actually happens now is an unfinished business, if you want, a possible case scenario that has been building up for many, many, many years. I will take it back to only 2014. From 2014, it's an unfinished business, and that's what he does. And the most scary part is that he does not really care about a possible spillover. And that's where the European Union and NATO comes in, that we should avoid any kind of spillovers, which should be objective number one. Mm -hmm. Objective number two is stop the war. And number three, help Ukraine uh, reshape itself and come to the westernized values, which should be very clear. However, however, by also helping out Russia to come back to the European values, the Tsarist Russia values, maybe not even the communist values or so on and so forth. It is obvious that socialism uh, in, in the way that is contemplated from the Russian point of view or oligarchy, if you want to call it social style, is over and done. It cannot be accepted in 2022. Right. If we allow Russia to do that now, it, see, it, it looks that we're going to leave the same thing to be done by China. And China is even harder than Russia, not only because it, of, of its power uh, building up might, but also of its development uh, process, demographics, too many people, the only country that can balance demographically China at this point is India. And interestingly enough, India rejected the UN attempts to, to condemn them. Uh, and this is an interesting point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and also some other countries, um, which somehow, somewhere date back to the historical connection between Russia Soviet Russia, communist Russia, with their expectations of the world and their understanding of the world. For me, the future of Ukraine has now been decided, so it's clear. I don't know. I do not know at which um, part will we see Ukraine. Will we see Ukraine as it is, or will Ukraine be divided? As an area, I know it's invaded. I know it's unlawfully invaded, but I'm not talking about Donetsk and Luhansk, but I'm talking about a greater proportion. And that's why I, I compared it somehow to, to Cyprus, because Cyprus has this special case that the whole island is part of the European Union. But then again, it has a frozen conflict that is yet to be solved mm-hmm. about the future of unification of Cyprus itself. It's- if we allow this to Ukraine, to happen, we allow this to happen to Cyprus. And it would be of no coincidence, and I think Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister of, 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 of Russia, somehow attempted to do that and somehow uh, attempted to parallel this, that, you know, the the, the unlawful Turkish Republic of Cyprus is um, uh, there and it's a reality. So if they ever do that, and if we ever allow this to Ukraine, then 
you know. It's interesting the comparison. It's interesting that comparison that you make because I think the 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 the, the Turkish Cypriot issue is one of the longest lasting items on the UN agenda. And you're talking about the important role now that EU and NATO need to play in the months, if not years, going forward. I wanted to know your opinion uh, on what you think about the credibility of these international organizations, for example, NATO and um, and. Sure. And UN, NATO is a country. Obviously, look, you, you mentioned that Ukraine is not a, um, a NATO member country. So, in the beginning, even though they were adamant about having these discussions, when the conflict broke out, they raised their hands and said, "You're not a NATO. You're not a NATO member. We're only going to reinforce the neighboring countries that are NATO members." Today, I think I heard on the news that they're going to be sending um, uh, military equipment. So I think they're backtracking on that decision. When it comes to the UN, the day of this invasion, there was an, an emergency meeting of the Security Council, which this year happens to be presided, uh, chaired by Russia. And in the middle of this urgent meeting that was called to discuss the conflict, the potential at that time conflict between Ukraine and Russia, Russia invades. And instead of just getting up and saying, okay, the meeting is over, you had all the UN ambassadors trying to... Um, convince the Russian ambassador to call home and get Putin to recall the invasion. There's something that just doesn't stick well with, yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, Russia plays a very, very fine game, which is not civilian level based. It plays a propaganda that actually shows something and does something else. Don't forget that Lavrov was saying two days earlier, we're not going to do, we're not going to invade anybody. Or yeah. if you remember correct, the 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 the, the foreign ministry spokeswoman, uh, she was saying, please, you know, to the British, please let us know when we're going to invade so we can uh, we can schedule our vacation. So they were playing a theater, mm. and you know, it, you know, leaders got offended. Leaders got offended because th there is a, a, an ethical value attached to it. Then when you discuss with your counterparts, it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree. Um, you know, some things are meant to be told. I'll give you an example. The entrance of Greece to World War II, if you remember correct, there was an ultimatum by the by the Italian ambassador to, to Greece, to the Greek prime minister Metaxas, who was saying, either you surrender or we go to war. These processes, those processes are normal to be done. These processes were never done like that. So they want to do the, what is known as, at least in the Western world, as the first blow, right? So they played a very nice chessboard, a very nice theater where, you know, people were expecting to have negotiations. And recently I was asked, you know, what I believe about those negotiations that are taking place now. It's like nothing. Until the negotiations take place, the Russian armed forces are getting ready and they're getting ready on a third wave, fourth wave, fifth wave. I'm actually, I don't understand why some, some Western channels are talking about second wave. This is the, the third or the fourth wave. So we're going for more waves and more separatists are going to are going to fight. They're going to be very violent and uh, they're not going to play by the rules of, of international, you know, war games, if you want to call it like that. And, um, you know, then the, the actual army will come, the actual Russian army will come, but only after, only after the Belarusians attack first. Because mm -hmm. they, they utilize, the Russians are utilizing everybody who's not like purely Russian, Russian from inside until the actual main forces come. They they have a convoy going towards Kiev and they have another convoy coming from Siberia and the eastern parts of, of Russia to the west. 
right? So I'm expecting full blast uh, air, naval, and, and, and land component being deployed at the same time. At the moment, you will see it, and I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. At the moment when negotiations are going to fade away, and they're not going to be in, you know, one side, we're going to choose the other one. And mm-hmm. already we're going for a third round of, of conversations and fourth and whatever, but there, there's not going to be, there's not going to be any kind of solution. That, I was clear for that. Well, now, well, terms, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. In terms of the EU and NATO, uh, I'm going to be very short on this. I'm going to say what I've been saying since day one. It is clearly answered that we do not, how I do, we do not hold decision-making process just like that, like the United States can do because it has a federal government. We are the European Union of 27 member states, which means they need to sit down, discuss, and talk. While they talk, Putin knew about that, that the whole mechanism of the European Union is going to take four to five days to take shape. And once they do that, only then they will be able to do some kind of reaction. NATO has its military com- uh, you know, composition and its committee. And, you know, they met, the ambassadorial level met, uh, high level, you know, uh, leaders met on on video call. But decision making is really important, which means we need a new European architecture, exactly like President Macron said, for the simple reason that the European architecture should include rules of engagement, first blow, what constitutes defense, what sort of means and methods do we use, and not only deployment in the borderline. Sometimes we need to do, um, you know, out of area operations. Unfortunately, for the Europeans of inter- of the actual true international law regulations, the invasion, uh, the invasion, the bombing, if you want, inside uh, Serbia uh, and Kosovo in 1999 created a predecessing legal case that actually proven that, you know, we should be careful until there is a a resolution by the United Nations Security Council that will allow NATO to be involved. And there will never be a Security Council resolution so far as you have Russia and China involved. And that's why for the last 10 years, not even now, the United Nations has been trying to, uh, to engage into a constant discussion of what do we constitute as Security Council, who takes decision, because for the last 50 plus years, Whatever Russia and China says, they agree, and the rest of the world may disagree in, in some instances. It is very few times that there was an actual decision which will allow eventually NATO to get involved, mm-hmm. which would would automatically, due to the Kosovo case, create an unlawful deployment of this. The only thing that, uh, if you want, has a window of opportunity, uh, but again, it, I think it, it, it does need a UN Council resolution. I, I get in this one. If you remember in Libya, the no-fly zone that was actually a, a mission done by by NATO as well. Um, somehow, if it can be found that, or they go unlawful because, anyways, um, uh, you know, Putin is has been utilizing and you know stretching the international law as much as he can by declaring that if. Ukrainians continue to be thrown away, then we're talking about ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. And probably Greeks, Greek Ukrainian in Southeast uh, Ukraine, um, uh, the more they die, the the more cleansing is taking place, finding an opportunity to be involved as European or Euro-Atlantic areas. And and just to, to complete my sentence in this one, it is of no coincidence that President Macron of France translated his Twitter in Greek saying that we will yeah. not allow this Greeks to happen. And that for me was kind of like 
why did he translate this in in, in Greek at this point? Mm-hmm. He's not talking only to the Greeks. He's talking yeah. to the Europeans. Mm-hmm. So uh, it seems that there is something something there. We need a new European architecture, and so, we also need to define our role uh, individually, but also collectively. So speaking of the credibility of these international organizations now, uh, speaking of Europe, do you think that the EU is a better catalyst for some sort of peace or security for the Ukraine? I know that there are some countries that have been pressuring uh, for an urgent accession of the of Ukraine into the European Union. I'm not so sure how that happens because I know there's 30 or 35 chapters that need to be uh Uh, complete in terms of the criteria, so I'm not sure how that would work. Um, well, but yeah. for that, you, do you uh, think do you think that would be a, a better route? Um, for security purposes, the rest can come second, because anyways, at this point, everybody knows that Ukraine's economy is 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 in ruins. I already asked for the IMF to be financed, not just sustain its economy, but rather to sustain the war. Um, so it needs it needs reconstruction. Um, however, uh, I also concur that we should do a fast a fast track. Uh, I think I was one of the first people when I, I started doing interviews in the media saying that one of the solutions are that Ukraine might apply for EU and NATO fast track entrance. Uh, NATO becomes a bit more difficult at this point, although the, the Ukrainian parliament had decided by a large majority to make an application for NATO, but that that will will make the Russians even more furious. So we, we have to be careful on the on the possible reaction. But the EU, he the President Zelensky already signed the 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 the, the wish, if you want, in the in the in the request. Um, but I think a fast track, at least in the European Union, would guarantee so that, that whatever that- happens. Yeah, how would that then impact the relations? I mean, obviously the relations are already impacted with what happened. But 145 countries, 145 countries already in the United Nations condemned Russia, mm-hmm. and one country after the other, including private businesses, are are um, making sure that Russia does not uh, enable itself to to trade outside the country. I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me to see how all these things happen almost uh in unity which is unprecedented uh, to to see all these decisions taken collectively by so many countries i mean even to the point where neutral countries such as switzerland sweden and finland uh came out of their that neutral status to uh uh to condemn russia uh and well, they, switzerland, sweden sweden and finland have an, have an interest because they're bordering russia mm-hmm. they also become part of nato Uh, they also believe that their security, national security, lays a hand uh, with regard to the instability of that the the Russian foreign policy exposure lately. Other global powers believe that Russia is really unstable at this point, so they cannot read them, so they cannot even believe them. If somebody speaks about, you know, uh, Lavrov was talking about human rights, and three quarters of the of of the of you know the the representatives actually took off and left. Uh, but um, about Switzerland, I. Th- think it becomes a bit more complicated because um, in in history, what I've read is that Switzerland actually was financing a lot of things during World War II. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of things, wars in, in financing in the sense, uh, I'm sorry, I take it back, not, not financing war, but rather utilizing loans to make gold, to, to sustain people's wishes to make war. Yeah. Um, so 
Switzerland was neutral in some ways, but it was not. Um, and you can ask the the Jewish people about that because when the war of Second World War ended, they turned into Switzerland's bank accounts in order to find out a lot of names and lists and people that actually use that. So it's not exactly they were neutral, but they they, they were not neutral, but they were neutral. Politically, they were neutral. Politically, uh, yeah. not financially neutral. Yeah. So somehow they used to win. Now there are new uh, center point of financial command, which can actually, um, if you want, uh, co-finance or finance or exchange or keep the gold and so on and so forth. And if you trace back how Russia has been dealing over the last years, you would see that um, the gold of Russia has increased. The dependence on the U.S. dollar has decreased. The exchange rate mechanism has been already the euro currency instead of the dollar. But this has been a long time ago. But then again, um, the the way that the treatment that Russia does was showing more uh, discontinuation of relations, at least financial, to others, which means that somebody's co-financing or helping or supporting this war. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly enough, there's another country that's been doing that, moving the gold from Fort Knox to other countries, and that is Turkey, and has been doing it for a long time. And then again, we saw what was happening in Syria, how easily engaged uh, Erdogan got with this kind of um, you know rhetoric. He became a populist. And uh, mind you here that while Ukraine takes place, Turkey is bombarding the Yarbakir in uh, East, East uh, Turkey, Kurdish area by majority. Uh, and he's devastating the whole area. He's really putting it down. But I do not see the international community talking too much about yeah. it. Because Ukraine is much, much more important. And here's where I'm going to open, if you want, the chapter of energy security and energy dependency. And um, at this point, I'm going to say that uh, it was announced that Germany will go by 2030 by 76 percent uh, with um, neutral, you know, uh, neutral footprint, which means alternative source of energy. While at the same time, it will discontinue being associated with other countries around Europe and around the world. It wants to have its own use of, of natural resource, uh, near source and utility of the sun and solar and wind um, wind technology. It seems that other countries will do that. But at the same time, it seems that the East Med between uh, Greece, Cyprus and Israel will go back on track, probably in further negotiations. While at the same time, we see some interesting attempt, attempts, if you want, of Turkey to come closer to Israel. And maybe Turkey can become an interlocutor to Lebanon. So maybe they can make another pipeline going uh, through, you know, from Egypt to Jordan, to to uh, to Israel, to Lebanon, to, to maybe parts of Syria, maybe Turkey. Turkey and you all you again need the the help and support of Russia because they have a, a force in Latakia, but you know it's quite quite interesting what, what's going to happen in terms of energy security. But the majority of the European countries are going to go solo, um, self sufficient, yeah, yeah self sufficient in nuclear in in energy power. And I'm not talking about nuclear. I'm talking about solar again, wind and and other technologies that may sustain the economy because until then. 
the bills that we're going to receive are going to be huge. Mm-hmm. And I think they will not be felt too much in the, uh, uh, in the, over the Atlantic institutions and organizations or people, but it's going to somehow show the stock market in the, in the years uh, to come. Uh, that, that's what I can say. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm just estimating at this point. Yeah. I, this is how I would feel. We saw already, um, you know, prices going up. And uh, to tell you the truth, I do not, I do not know whether it's about a good time to actually speak about what the 21st century is, and this is future technology, overall digital economy, digital ecosystem, um, maybe outer space exploration can help us get some more natural resources uh, from the moon or any other kind of planet. You know, everything is everything is 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 really like taking shape somehow. Uh, but if you if we were to make what Friedman did for you know the next hundred years, this is what I would foresee. Let me ask you another question. Um, people, you know, in our generation, we haven't really lived to see uh, landmark historical moments, right? Like those events that, as they're happening, they are history in the making. Uh, of course, you know, we, we, we've seen wars in recent history. I mean, I remember, you know, the Gulf War, I was really young, uh, the recent war in Afghanistan, um, you know, many conflicts in the Middle East. You mentioned uh, the conflict in the Balkans during the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, but I don't think those events are as defining as, for example, you know, the bombing uh, of, Pearl, uh, of Pearl Harbor or, you know, um, Hitler invading Poland, the fall of the Berlin Wall, even though we were alive you know, we were way too young to even understand what was happening. Um, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Again, we were alive, but still very young to understand fully what was going on. Um, do you think that what's happening now in Ukraine, uh, that we're living a, a defining moment in history? Is that prelude to World War III? <laughs> I don't know. Not necessarily a prelude to World War III, but is this a defining moment? Like in five, ten years from now, will this Will these developments be a monumental historical? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, 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 absolutely. Because again, of the importance of Ukraine as a land, uh, as an area, as an energy hub, or a you know transport of energy, if you want to call it, or because of natural resources. If you check how many how many natural resources can Ukraine deal with, uh, it can be self sustained by itself. I mean. Mm and they would never, the Russians would never allow that. The Europeans would never allow that. But the, the Europeans would never go to war, uh, whereas the Russians would. Yeah. And they did. Um, my fear, again, is what I said in the beginning, is the spillover. And the spillover, the more the war continues, the more clearer it becomes. Now, they, if... If, if, if Ukraine manages to split into two, let's say, then other regions are going to utilize this opportunity style same that the Russians did. Balkans is an unfinished business. We have Western uh, Balkans uh, countries that need to join the UN NATO, and that's another issue. Um, we have countries that are neutral at this point such as Serbia, for example. It wants to play a more global role in business, but it wants to do business also with Russia. But it's obviously against the war. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, things in Central Asia did not really end into something. Mm-hmm. You still have the Taliban, and more than ever now, they control Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And Afghanistan is a passage also. Uh, Syria is an unfinished business. 
um, you know, uh, Iraq, northern Iraq, the Kurdish question is an unfinished business. Turkey, although it plays its role in, in this period of time, is also fearful of this, um, you know, the, the, the spillover. Why? Because although Turkey wants to play a pivotal role, it also knows that Russia can have the capacity to export this into Turkey for a multiplicity of reasons, starting with the Montreal Treaty. So if they say to the Russian fleet, don't come, don't, you know, we'll stop you. So they have no other choice um, to pass if they pass through the streets of, of, of Constantinople. Um, and um, this is another issue. Um, Transnistria uh, in Moldova uh, is an issue. Abkhazia in Georgia is an issue still. Very smaller, a lot smaller, but still there. Um, Chechnya is stable, and now they have a case study with uh, with Chechnya because Te- Chechnya and Grozny, which is the most uh, deadly fights taking place over, you know, in the post-Soviet era, uh, is now being rebuilt in a very capitalistic and oligarchic way, which basically is the case study for Putin saying, "Oh, look." know we'll destroy the whole country but we'll rebuild it look at this how it's done Hmm. and it's done with investments from different countries um so the you know the the west is fearful that the current state of affairs and borders are going to change the eastern part meaning russia is fearful that if it doesn't then Russia's role will fade away as well, like, you know, in case that NATO's role is fading away. Mm-hmm. What you now have is you have the next Cold War for the next, let's say, I don't know, 10, 30 years, 10, 20, 30 years to come. You've got a very clear role for NATO to take place and take shape on. And it will take very, very, you know, slow pace movements in order to restore some kind of, um, some kind of, uh, tension, if you want, or respect to each other's fate. So there's a momentum that needs to be built, and it's not going to build, not before the European structure is there in place. The Americans have also to to show us the the role that they want to play in the Middle East or in Central, you know, Eastern Europe or Eurasia region, because it seems that the United States is also, on the one hand, withdrawing or reshaping, you can call it like that, Latin America, is an issue because there's a lot of support towards Russia still, uh, especially former, uh, you know, USSR style uh, support. And I think we will see some kind of, you know, reemergence. I mean, you, you still have Venezuela and all these things, but um, this will reemerge somehow. Um, in Africa, Africa, another big place of competition is there. And now for extra fun, you've got also countries like Turkey trying to be involved into this in a much more institutional way rather than people of government or, you know, business to business entities. Um, The Arab world, the Gulf world has also a very big saying into this because the, the Gulf has now emerged to be, if you want, a lot of opportunity, especially for regions around that are either reshaped or undershaped by war and therefore people migrate there and invest and do or large corporations, West and East, just go there. So they somehow try to become interlocutors of peace through business. And if you see like the, the rules of business in Saudi Arabia or in the UAE, you will see the rules of business that are trying to balance things around. That's why we see a new Switzerland maybe in the making there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there is a lot of uh, geographical changes that will pinpoint to the Ukrainian case as being the crossroads 
for the new architecture, new alliances, new, um, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that, new alliance to be shaped in an era of hybrid threats and therefore requiring what I call in my theories, hybrid alliances, which means that alliances are shaped by interest in a regional perspective rather than global in a short period of time that based on that result, then you contemplate on a larger, larger, larger period of time. Interesting. We've seen this with multilateral or trilateral alliances in the region of East Med shape taking shape. Now we'll see in a, in a more extended value where every two, three, four, five years, um, an evaluation has been done in order to uh, to see how alliances go or change. Well, uh, let's look at Ukraine specifically. Um, they're putting up a resistance that very few people actually predicted. Um, uh, very few actually know how to explain it. Uh, do you think Russia underestimated the Ukraine? Um, I, I and you know, I believe, I believe that the Ukrainians have a very uh, they're very proud people, and I saw that in, in when I was there. Um, they're very proud. They're, they have a glorious history as well, uh, local and regional and national. Uh, so, yeah, of course, why not? But I also believe that the Russians have not yet shown us their full capability and capacities. I am yet to see the weapons that they said that they are embracing their military might with. So They've how far do you think? How far do you think modernization of military that I have not seen yet? I mean, nobody has see, seen it, and that, that's the question yeah, so uh, everyone where is wondering. They? Where are they? Uh, and it also feels that everything that is happening, uh, it feels as though Russia is always kind of a step behind. There are a lot of reports that I'm reading and some analyses that are suggesting that there may be a mole uh, in the high-ranking spheres uh, close to Putin that is collaborating with Western intelligence services. Um, I don't know how valid that is, but in any case, uh, I agree with you that maybe we haven't seen Russia's full might. Uh, if, there is, if there is a mole, then I think they know about this mole and they give them all the false information in order to disinform the West. I mean, you should not, we should not underestimate the enemy in this case. So how far do you think Russia is prepared to escalate this conflict? Do you think that there's... They, they can... I would be concerned. I would be concerned if, I mean, until now, Putin said he would not, he would not have cut the flow of gas or petrol to Europe through the existing pipelines, excluding Nord, Nord Stream 2, uh, because it's canceled now. So even the company has, you know, uh, bank has filed bankruptcy. Um, in Switzerland, uh, but um, the the interesting part is that he put his mil his nuclear military uh, in high level preparedness, mm -hmm. but then again, it gives flow of gas and petrol. I would be concerned if he stops flow of gas and petrol at the moment and then continues to be in a full range scale of nuclear. But if he does this, uh, then. Uh, we have no reason to wait for any longer. We, I, I think the Western powers will not only stop them, but they will also invade them by all means necessary and from all sides hmm. without, you know, kind of, you know. Is there any fear of nuclear weapons being used? I don't know if I knew that. That would probably make me a president of a, a country, I, I presume. Um, so I don't know. I don't know, honestly. Uh, but, but you know what? Um, I see a lot of egoism. I see a lot of uh, threats. I see direct threats for people that they were they used to sit on tables and, and talk and negotiate whatever it was to negotiate in a peaceful way. 
This has gone above and beyond. I really do not like it. It's not about being afraid. It's about the element of disaster that will come in to every single country and every single one of us. Ukraine is a big country. It should not be underestimated its power, ability, and might. But let's all also be honest that they're fighting alone in terms of human capital and abilities. Their people are fighting there. While at the same time, um, the Europeans or the Americans are, are helping them with military um, um, you know, with military uh, um, uh, uh, artifacts, but they're not, they're not, they cannot win the war by themselves. Mm. Um, so I don't, I do not, I, like, what I foresee is like some kind of like, you know, Ukraine becoming financially like Syria. And therefore, in order for Ukraine to not go oligarchic or more, you know, closed or more, uh, protective to itself, um, uh, it has to become part of the EU to somehow be guaranteed its security and its progress and its development, because otherwise it will become a totally, totally closed, insecure country that West, East, North, South comes to bilateral relations that would never be able to trust anyone mm -hmm. because they would not have done the things that they were supposed or meant to be. And I think that's why um, I think Boris... Um, uh, uh, Boris Johnson is much, much more clear uh, with regards to what UK should do uh, because he feels the, these vibes coming in. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he knows that the Russians have been very much dependent on their investments that is taking shape in, in the UK, mm -hmm. namely for centuries, by the way, not now. Um, so, you know, it, it's a break of ties at this point and it's happening slowly. And it makes case by case by case, and it gives reason for either sides to turn their back and to defend themselves the way that they, they want to defend themselves. I am I'm not so sure that the war is going to finish real soon. And I'm not so sure that even if the war stops now, how do you actually rebuild countries, economies, respect, tolerance, coexistence, peace? How do you build that? You can't build it in one day. Yeah, it's interesting that you're mentioning that because I was going to ask you about the sanctions that we're seeing. I mean, these are unprecedented sanctions. We've never seen uh, uh, countries go to such lengths to impose uh, sanctions like we've seen already. And there's probably more to come. We, we don't know. How damaging do you think they can be or how damaging have they already been uh, to Russia? Do you think that Putin has put Russia back 50 years? Um, uh, is this somehow of a downfall of Putin, or can do you think that he can? Yeah, I think I think I think they want people to revolt against Putin. That's obvious. I mean, uh, from oligarchs to revolt against Putin and, and people to revolt against Putin. But the question is, can Russia be, if you want, can can, can Russia adopt a much more democratic pathway, the way that is understood in the European Union or in the United States or Canada? I do not. I'm not sure of that because of the it's 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 historical changes that has been taking place. So it went from Charles Russia to communist Russia, and now to somehow capitalist oligarchic Russia. In in all in all cases, it's been run by the few. Um, so 
you take out one, then who's going to take over? What sort of system you're going to have? What sort of democracies you're going to have? There were some democratic rights in Russia and, you know, blast and stuff. I'm pretty sure they're taken away by now. Uh, so I'm very fearful that one eighth of the world's land is going to be under a system that has no correlation, relation or connection with the 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 west what we call the west Mm -hmm. or the westernized civilized world um and this is a very very big thing the oligarchs of course they're hit people are hit simple people are hit and i'm not that sure that we also understand how big russia is Mm -hmm. because vladivostok on the eastern part of of russia I do not think they feel the war in Ukraine the way that um, Moscovite can feel it or the way that one that borders Ukraine from inside Russia would feel it at this point. Um, uh, so it takes a while to, you know, if they are attempting to overthrow Putin, uh, I think this is the most democratic and meaningful way to overthrow him. If they're aiming to, to hit people, they're already doing that. And we will see that, but it will take more than just one month or two months or three months. Uh, the system, will it go back to normality again? No, the European, Euro-Atlantic system will become much, much more strong and at the same time, much stricter. And that's another fear. I'm, I'm afraid that because of the fear that we see Europeans on non-European you know, members coming that we're going to become much more like close to ourselves, much more a nation-based sovereign and European-based sovereign. And we're going to be like, no, we, we don't want you. You do not offer what we want. We don't want that. And therefore, other countries will have to somehow associate themselves with similar structures, which are already there, but they're going to become also stronger in some ways. And they're going to be less dependent on the westernized elements and so on and so forth. That's why we need, we. this is important why we need the United Nations. And again, the United Nations, because it's a dialogue, it's a process of dialogue, it's a process of discussion about peace and conflict resolution, which is just not there. Mm-hmm. The world is not peaceful. And we, we we expect that we see people in the world to be peaceful, but we're not. We're not. We're not. I mean, show me how much part of the world is actually peaceful. Yeah. In the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of all these people dying, how many cases that we saw with regards to you know climate change and natural disasters and health issues and health security? So there are a lot of things that we need to talk about. And I think that still, I believe that although we have NATO in the EU for the Euro-Atlantic region and the region itself, and you have the, the American institutions for you know ease of trade and legal issues and so on and so forth, we still need the United Nations to make a global discussion to actually check out what it does peace mean, how can it be achieved, what is international law, how can it be achieved, what sort of system of rule are we going to have, and under which conditions the non-democratic rule that, you know, we're not perfect, but then again, this is a democracy and this is the best rule that we can have. How can non-democracies be ruled and how, how much can we tolerate of a possible future invasion, because other, as I said, other countries may take this this role. I mean, don't forget that North Korea, with, with former President Trump, North Korea was on an imminent collision course with the United States, they were threatening each other. But then again, Trump was smart enough to meet him in Vietnam and just mellow it down for a while. Um, you know, so there are other countries that can do even more crazy things uh, in, in Russia in case that Russia needs some some sort of rescue or China. China has been threatening Taiwan for the last week every single day. Mm-hmm. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to attack the Americans. I'm going to attack you. I'm going to attack the Americans. They've been saying it. What happens if they do? 
you know so they, they the that's why i said the chinese are even worse they don't feel anything at this point they do not feel and things that although we are interconnected globally so you know i'm in europe you're in canada so we we can actually talk so fast and you know trans, transmit information just like this we also do not feel the everyday life and how important or how different is everyday life in the other side of the earth and one of the things we also do not realize as the western world is the eastern hemisphere has more population than the west part that what we call the west not the western hemisphere but the west mm. right so we also need to somehow see the balances which are not there and somehow bring some sort of balance into the discussions that are taking place, whether this is for economic reasons, religious regions, political regions, cultural regions, egoism of, of leaders who want to fight others or they want to have this grandioso empire coming back, like, you know, I don't know, uh, Erdogan, new Ottoman, uh, Putin, new communist, uh, uh, Russia, uh, uh, you know, uh, North Korea, I don't know, fighting South Korea or the world, I don't know what they're fighting, or China becoming the, the dragon and the dragon, you know, giving the, this, this, this opportunity to get the Mazatun communism around the world. It, it, it is... It is not understood why would they do it but again it gives a reasoning for the european union and nato to have defense measures clauses and possibilities to be there right. and it gives reasoning for us to invest more money i mean look at the germans the germans said they're going to invest 100 billion euros in defense expenditure world war ii cases bye-bye it's gone gone forever and ever they utilize the opportunity now to end the discussion of the ability of germany to have military might as it used to have in the in the in in previous times why because of the need to national sovereignty defense against anybody else so you can see that now everybody's going to utilize the, this opportunity to do their own national policy, to do their collective policy, but at the same time, their national policy. And interests are going to change. Alliances are going to change. And that's why I call it the new architecture needs to be done. And I think in this case, the MENA region and the, the South Europeans also have an opportunity. The European Union has an opportunity to do fast-track entrance of the Western Balkans, Central Eastern European countries that, that have this tendency to come with. Don't forget what happened with Armenia and Azerbaijan has also an issue. Armenia was having a defense pact with, our, with Russia and Iran, because if you see their neighbors, they're, they're both neighbors, but nobody got involved because at some point Armenia put the European flag or the Euro-Atlantic flag. There is another uh, gift that the Russians did uh, to the Armenians. Um, Interesting. And goes on and on and on. Last question for you, Mario. Um, do you think there's any hope? Is there any room for hope that these negotiations might actually work and that we're, we'll see a ceasefire? Uh... No, no, not at all. I said it before. Yeah. I said it before, I said it earlier in, in, in question number one. No, no, there will not be. There will not be because I don't trust them. I don't trust somebody who says uh, cease, uh, cease fire. Okay, good. Uh, um, give up. Uh, overthrow your government. Uh, give up the country. Would you do that? I wouldn't. Yeah. So th what, what is there to talk? What is there to, to say what? what? To say what? And, you know, you, you want to negotiate something in terms of surrender when you have won the war. He's actually acting as he won. He And now he came to Macron saying today, oh, okay, operations are going fine for Russia. So did you conquer them or not yet? So he's playing. 
He's playing, it's evident he's playing, but we do not read him well, even in these operational times. This is a former, you know, spy, a military guy who has lived all his life showing you things and telling you things and meaning another or not meaning anything at all and yeah. just throwing you things empty until you, you know, you, 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 you take the hang of it. And the Europeans are much more equal in value in democracy. If you, if, if they become your interlocutor and you speak to them, they will trust you. Mm. Let's say okay. If you say it's a, I, I, it's a, yeah, it's a it's a different ball game. Uh, we're, play, we're we're playing different sports. There, there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue. They 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 canceled it twice, and each 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 other are fighting. And this 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 third round, second round, I don't know, of negotiations lasts for three hours. It took him four hours to go and three hours to talk. Only and what did they talk only about humanitarian relief uh, uh, corridors? Oh, amazing, excellent! This means this war is going to it's going to continue because the corridors are going to increase as well, and the dead people are going to increase as well. My my only hope is that some leader, and I honestly mean it to to for, for this case, maybe some leader, some European or I don't know some other leader, can actually take the plane fly over to Ukraine to a battle area. And this person will stay in history, by the way, and somehow invite other leaders to join him in somehow putting a thing to an end. Knowing the stakes, life stakes, first of all, but also knowing that if somebody hurts them, then there will be an all-open war. Mm. The, if you know, It's an issue of leadership at this point. So if we really want to bypass the methodology that is done, Somebody has to go there now. In one of my first interviews, they I, I told them that these things are going to happen in terms of like he's going to try to overthrow in the next four days. Going to say you know give up now your weapons and start negotiations and all this. But I also said that if I was uh, you know Zelensky, President Zelensky, I would take the plane with two jets, informing all my allies in the West and the United Nations Secretary General, saying I'm taking the plane off to Moscow to discuss. And it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a method of impression. It's a game of impression at this point. But he would land. They would not put him down. They would not kill him. He would have to show some sort of sacrifice uh, in terms of what do you want? What do you want to conquer? I'm, I'm here. Okay, what do you want? What do you, want? you want to catch me? You want to kill me? What do you want to do? Um, he's a president for, of the whole Ukraine, and Putin will not stop unless he actually does this. But if somebody does preemptively a psychological uh, a psychological move, if you want, then this becomes more complicated for Putin, which is something that he cannot deal with. Mm-hmm. He actually expects the West to attack. He actually expects and wants the West to attack. And I think also the West knows about that. Mm-hmm. So he can prove his validity of argument. Yeah. Over- that's why he did all this big, big, big speech of, you know, not really clear why he, he did it, but he did it because the Russians are learned to do that. So if you go against the flow of history and you prove historically that they're wrong, then the people are going to, the Russians are going to go against Putin. And until now, he's trying to win the hearts and minds of the people by saying, look, they're doing this to us. And that's why he's playing the propaganda war. Mm-hmm. He's showing different things in, in on TV. And RT, RT has been using this forever and ever again. Like yeah. you put CNN and RT <laughs> one in the same story, they would show black and white, uh, literally. Um, two different stories, same topic. 
um, and and they would result to to do different things. So you really don't know what it is. I mean, I I, I received the picture uh, of 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 soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers somewhere or Russian soldiers, this is the problem, being surrendered. And I got two people tweeting, one Russian, one Ukrainian, saying, Ukrainian surrendered, no Russian surrendered. Yeah, yeah. So which one's right? Yeah. You understand? So this is where we are. Uh, hybrid threats, you know, hybrid threats. Mario, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time, buddy. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. Um, your knowledge, I'm convinced, will bring a lot of value to all the listeners and to all the to everyone that is uh, watching this on YouTube. Um, be well, my friend. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and uh, I hope that we talk soon. George, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity, and I, I hope to see you soon in person. And uh, I really hope you continue to do what you're doing right now because it's really interesting and important. Um, and it gives an opportunity for just two simple civilians to to share, if you want, their their knowledge and information. I know you know plenty of things as well. And you have done your own path in, in, in Canada and you have gotten the share of political affairs as well. Uh, and you know how decisions are taken, how advising takes place. We need people like you. We need people in the, for 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 the future in in the global in the global arena as well. We're much more interconnected than ever before, and that is that is very clear. But unfortunately, it seems that not all of us share the same willingness to to be in a in a much much greater and safer and very futuristic, if you want, world where we get to explore the opportunities of this earth or other planets or something like that. We it seems that people are craving for war, so. This is very unfortunate, and I really hope that when I was reading history, we would never have to repeat ourselves in, in this in these historical terms. Uh, so what you're doing is really a blessing in a lot of ways because it gives the opportunity to people like me to say a few things in conjunction with what you you say and and give us the honor to 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 say out loud. And I really hope that you know you continue with that. And with this said, thank you very much from Europe. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thanks.